0: You're listening to the Bold Face Truth Podcast with Amy Green Smith, episode 458. You can find information on anything referenced in this week's episode at amygreensmith.com slash EP458. Oh, well, hey there. Check you out listening to self-help pods and working on yourself. Fuck yeah. yeah. Quick question. You know those situations where your boss asks you to take on one more thing, or your partner asks what's bothering you, and you respond with a bold-faced lie? Oops. What would shift for you if you actually started telling the bold-faced truth? Everything. Listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, perfectionism, and you could use some help with boundaries or speaking up, you are in the right place. Thank god. I am Amy Green-Smith. I'm a certified and credentialed life coach, hypnotherapist, and keynote speaker. Fancy. And I have been working in the personal development space since the mid-2000s. Vintage. Sometimes I'll be solo, other times you'll hear from smart folks offering you easy to implement tools to help you tell the bold-faced truth.
1: Yes. Yes!
0: Hey, hey, pod people, Amy here. I am excited to be bringing you another installment in our mini-series around stuckness. Last week, I talked about 10 specific things that you can do when you feel stuck to help kind of shift that stagnation. Next week, I'm going to be doing a solo episode all about how procrastination and perfectionism go hand in hand, leaving you a little bit paralyzed and stuck sometimes. But this week, I am going to be dialing up an expert. Her name is Britt Frank. She is unbelievable. She has written a book called The Science of Stuck. So I'm hoping I can get her on the line. I want to tell you a little bit about her, and then we'll give her a ring. Hopefully she picks up. But Britt Frank is a clinician, educator, and trauma specialist. She speaks and writes wildly about the mental health myths that keep us stuck and stressed. In fact, I'm going to talk to her a lot about anxiety in particular, because that is one of those things that... (laughs) most of us deal with, that kind of keeps us in that state of paralysis. She received her BA from Duke University and her MSW from the University of Kansas, where she later became an award-winning adjunct professor. She is also a somatic experience practitioner and level three trained in the internal family systems therapeutic model. Her first book, The Science of Stuck, was released just this past March 2022 and is available now. I'm telling y'all, check the link in the show notes because she sent me a copy of this book and I was hooked right from the beginning of it. And I'm going to be Picking her brain and kind of asking her a handful of things uh, that she writes about in the book, really candidly, really honestly, from sort of a therapeutic perspective, that I think you will be really interested in. So I'm going to give her a call here in a second. But before I do that, I wanted to mention again some really, really exciting news. I don't know if you caught it last week. I have been curating and crafting a brand new program. And it is the mother load of all of the the culmination of all of my work, my certifications, all of my studies over the last fifteen years. It is called worthy period. Worthy of the life you want, worthy of the relationships you desire, it really targets this innate enoughness that so many of us struggle with, which then informs if we feel comfortable advocating for ourselves, speaking up for ourselves, having the confidence to go after things. So this is all about those of you who have a death grip on perfectionism, on people-pleasing, making sure that everybody else is taken care of, trying to control everything, being your own worst critic. We are unpacking all of this. And get this, it is not a short program. It is going to span nine months. Months. So, this is a deep dive immersion, radically transformative. I have seen dramatic results in people's lives just from a shorter program of about four months. That's what I was doing for a long, long time. My signature program was, uh, three to four months, and people were just dramatically changed. And that was one of the things that that a lot of my students would say is, I actually believe that I am enough. And when you believe that you are enough, when you believe that you are worthy, you don't tolerate bullshit in your marriage anymore or in your friendships or with your family. You have the words to start speaking up for yourself. You go after things that you've always wanted to accomplish. You go back to school. You create your own business. So much as possible when you genuinely operate from a place of self-worth. So let's get you there. And that's not even the best part. The best part, I think, is that this program includes a five-day luxury Mexican retreat with me. I'm capping it at only 15 students. And so it's going to be super small and intimate. We're going to be going through this journey for the better part of a year together that will culminate in an incredible in-person luxury event where we can do some awesome growth-filled sister shit around a bonfire, which you will not want to miss. So if you know that it's been time for you to really put a serious time investment into what's going on with you and shifting some of this stuff. If you don't want to be in the same fucking spot a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, please go to amygreensmith.com slash worthy. And I'm not sure if we're going to have the official invite ready for you this week. I'm not sure yet. However, go to that URL and put your name in for the VIP, those folks who are on that list will get the invitation to worthy the absolute first, which means you'll have the first option at applying for the program. I want to make sure that everybody that I work with is 100% a fit. So go to amygreensmith.com slash worthy. Get your name on that VIP list. You will be the first to get the formal invitation and then uh, jump through the application process, which is really quite simple and also pretty therapeutic just to answer some of those questions. I have had many folks say that just filling out an application for one of my programs left them crying and emotional and like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for what's possible and I know I need to do this work. And it's it really is an act of bravery. Also, while you're there, be sure to check out the testimonials of other women who I've worked with. I think that's one of the most encouraging pieces of joining a program like this is recognizing that other people who have been in your exact same situation struggling to speak up for themselves, riddled with people-pleasing and perfectionism and all these things that are holding them back, that they're, they have been there too and that your situation, you are not uniquely broken. It's just that you haven't been given the skills or the tools to really access your worthiness and believe in it. Check out that link Ooh, I do so hope we get to hang out and do some amazing stuff and and cruise the beaches of Mexico. Fuck, yes. All right, so now that I'm all pumped up, let me give Britt a call and let's dig into the science of stuck.
1: Hello, Britt, hey, it's Amy. How are you, friend? Hi. Oh my God. I just took the best poop ever. I am (laughs) like feeling good, feeling good. You're feeling 10 pounds lighter, (laughs) 10 pounds lighter and nothing but time and relaxation. I'm here. What's up?
0: (laughs) I, I have newly, uh, installed bidets in my house. And so the, the poop adventures have been so different as of late. (laughs) So I can totally appreciate that. Uh, but listen, so I'm, I'm hanging out over here with the audience. We've been talking about getting stuck and sort of the, the litany of ways that we get stuck in our lives. And I thought, I've got to call it Brit. I, you've literally written the book on it. And I would love to discuss a handful of things around stuckness. So sounds like you're free. Sounds like you've got some time.
1: I do. Well, you know, the whole stuck constipation thing is very <laughs> relevant to what we're talking about here with stuckness. So, yeah, no, I've got nothing but time. I am fully not stuck right now. <laughs> okay,
0: perfect. Uh so the one thing that I mean, this is this dovetails really nicely that you talk about a lot in your book that I think really warrants underlining is the correlation and the connection between how we feel emotionally and then how it physically manifests. Right. Mm-hmm. Like uh-huh. there's a reason why sometimes when you're emotionally stressed out, you have issues with your poop, <laughs> you know, and yes, stuff, yes, right. Yes, yes. So a segue, we didn't even anticipate. So uh, as sort of a meta view before we jump in, can you just rattle off in your experience as a therapist, trauma-informed psychotherapist, What are some of the most common ways people present as stuck?
1: Mm, and such a good question. And so my disclaimer here is all of what we talk about, all of what I talk about in the book, assume that you're not like in the Ukraine right now, or that you're not living with poverty and oppression, like assuming that you have relative enough safety and your basic needs for the most part are met. That's like my disclaimer. So that all said being stuck to me is there's no like logical reason why the thing you want to do, you're not doing. It's like, I want to be doing this, whether it's starting a business, starting a Workout routine, dating, whatever it is. And yet I'm not doing it. And this giant gap between what I want to do and what I'm actually doing, that's the stuck point. And it shows up as anxiety, it shows up as addiction, it shows up as burnout. That's a biggie, especially in like the whole pandemic thing. It's like, I I really struggle with work-life balance. I'm like, not really that I know you think that's what you struggle with, but that's actually not the thing. Um, when we say we struggle with work-life balance, usually what we mean is we struggle with work-life boundaries and boundaries are a huge sticking place for people. Like the inability or unwillingness to set boundaries will put you stuck somewhere. And that's a biggie. So, yeah.
0: I a hundred percent agree. I, we talk a lot about boundaries on the show, but I also think sometimes burnout is just living in a hyper capitalist productivity based. You're only valuable for what you produce sort of society that tells us rest is a sign of weakness (laughs) rather than like necessary for your nervous system. Yeah, so we we could definitely go down a rabbit hole there. I'm curious about the folks who feel stuck not necessarily because they're not taking action towards something that they want, but feel stuck because they have no fucking idea what they want.
1: Yeah, That's a big problem. Right. And I hear this every day. Like, I don't know what I want. Like if you ask me, what the fuck do I want? I don't know. I really don't know. And I have compassion on that. Cause I was captain of that team. But the thing is, is if you quiet down the the chatter enough, it's Martha Beck says this, who I love. She wrote uh, the wave of integrity, which just came out. So, so good. And she's like, when she sits with, her clients and they say they don't know what they want. That's almost never true. Like if you drill down far enough, it's like, I may not think I should want what I want. I might not think what I want is possible. I might not think I have a right to want what I want, but it's actually almost never true. If you slow down enough that it's like, I have no clue what I want. It's like, well, I, I I get you, but like, sounds like what you want is to not be in this relationship and to not be in that job and to start a business and to move out and to like, that's scary, but it's almost not ever the case that we genuinely have zero clue. It's just scary to know what we know. One of the things
0: that I oftentimes will tell people around this is, Well, let's start with the things that you don't want, because there's usually sort of an antithesis there that will lead you in the direction of what you do want. So if you're dying at this job, maybe what you want is more independence. Maybe you want some autonomy. Maybe if you're having a really difficult time in an intimate partnership, what you're really wanting is connection or intimacy or vulnerability, right? So sometimes just looking at what hurts and what's so fucking uncomfortable can start pointing us towards what, what we do want. And yes,
1: absolutely. It's a great tool working backwards. And even before that step, asking yourself what, am I afraid would happen if I got everything that I wanted? Like what relationships would actually have to change? Cause if you can address the fear of wanting what you want on the front ends, then it's a lot easier to wade through the sorting and organizing and figuring out, you know, what's what, but yeah, like what would have to change if you got, if you were super mega freaking happy and every dream you had came true, what's going to change. And let's deal with that. Cause that's pretty scary. Cause it's likely that a lot of things are going to have to change. That's right. That's right. And it, it, that
0: also can dovetail back to boundaries, right? Yes. Because yes. we think about, you know, the fear of success. I know I've heard you talk about this before fear of success, a lot of times is around what is going to change and are people going to be asking me for money or demanding my time? Am I going to, you know, I know my husband, he has a fear of success in that sense of how will that impact our marriage? Is Mm -hmm. that going to mean that I'm burning the candle at both ends, so to speak, and don't have space for the things that really matter. So I absolutely think That can be such a huge piece. And then it becomes about boundaries, boundaries with time, boundaries with what what we say yes to. Why can we not just think ourselves forward? We're smart as fuck. Why can't we just think ourselves forward?
1: Isn't that the most frustrating part of like our human fuckery is that we (laughs) genuinely know what to do. It's like, I am thinking positive and I'm rah, rah. I am woman, hear me roar. Um, But like, you can't think your way out of feeling stuck because feeling stuck is about your nervous system. It's not about your thinking brain. And we miss a lot of really, really, really useful, important, effective tools when we forget that we exist from the neck down. Like we have bodies. I know that sucks sometimes, but we have bodies and our bodies do things automatically. And if you're stuck in a fight, flight, freeze response, there is no amount of positive affirmations that'll get you out of that.
0: I love that you talk about this. And there's something in your book that I, it made me want to throw it across the room. (laughs) (laughs) I got so fucking mad at Western medicine and the idea that most therapists don't learn a damn thing about the body. And like physiological responses to things.
1: At all. And most people who go to, I won't say most, many people who go to see therapists don't know that the person sitting in front of you has never learned about the brain, has never learned that you have a central nervous system. And therapists are not required to disclose what their limitations are, which is like criminally negligent to me. It's like, you don't know about my fucking brain and you're going to sit here and tell me why my life's not working. Really? That's sort of a big heat. It's like going to a surgeon that's never operated on anyone. Like what? But the fact is, is you don't need to be trained in the brain or the body to practice as a therapist. That's so fascinating to me. And I think it also
0: speaks to sort of the way that we compartmentalize all these different types of health when it really needs a holistic approach. So uh, one of the things that I was thinking about, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. The so when I went to hypnotherapy school, we learned a lot about the theory of mind and the subconscious versus the conscious. And there are a lot of similarities, I think, when we talk about neuroscience. I always got confused between brain and mind. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Oh, God, that's such a philosophical (laughs) sort of clusterfuck. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Okay. So I will say your brain is the physical structure. Like you can cut open your head and see your brain. Like there it is. It's, you know, this mushy gray mass and there, you know, like you can touch it, you can hold it, you can feel it. Your mind consciousness, no one has freaking figured out where that lives. There's not like, I can't, I can't cut into your left temporal lobe and see your mind. And so the mind and what is consciousness and why are we conscious and why can we think nobody, anyone who says that they know, like, I mean, whatever works for you, cool. But like, no one actually knows what that is. So I like to think of the mind as the inner voice that we talk to and that we listen to. And there's like the big mind, the self, the divine self, the Christ nature, the Buddha, whatever the fuck you want to call it. There's like capital S self. Mm -hmm. And then there's little S self. So there's like big minds and little minds.
0: Okay. That's super helpful. So I'm thinking more like sort of uh, something analogous to that might be your heart, your physical beating heart compared to uh, your soul. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So sort of the, a similar dynamic with brain versus mind. Because I, I think about things like, you know, the subconscious mind being, you know, depending who you talk to, roughly 90% of our mind's power versus the 10% ish, five to 10% ish of the conscious faculty of the mind, and where the critical factor is kind of right in between those two. But then I also hear about where the fight, flight, freeze responses and fawn are located in the actual brain. Is that correct?
1: Yes, 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 yes. And fight, flight, freeze, and this is why I like putting the neuroscience because I love spirituality and any, I know you can't technically measure the subconscious, which means technically you can make a case for the fact that it doesn't exist, but like talk to anyone who's ever made a decision that was less than optimal. And then tell me the subconscious doesn't exist. Like there is subconscious things outside of our conscious awareness that are happening all of the time. So I'm a big believer in we have to do our shadow work and bring the unconscious to conscious awareness. Okay. But fight, flight, freeze is a measurable physiological. It's structural. It's in your brain when your amygdala is like your brain's panic button. And when it goes off, it sends hormones down your spine, which go out to your nerves and make you feel shitty. So it's nice to know that at least some of this stuff is measurable. And it's physiological. But if we're not including that in our wellness practices, if we ignore the fact that we are biological organisms, like animals that are like prowling about looking for threats and looking for opportunities, then we're going to have a whole mess of symptoms and think that we're crazy. And that's just not true. There's no such thing as a crazy person. What? Yeah. I, I, I completely concur. And I, one of the things that I
0: love that you talk about, which is something that we discuss a lot here on the show is how a lot of the things that show up as symptoms um, are really messaging for us. I talk about it a lot from an emotional standpoint that there are no bad emotions. They're all just messaging to be like, look, bitch, you need to pay attention. You know, there's a reason why you're overwhelmed that, you know, and it's sort of the equivalent of, or the comparison of, emotional pain versus physical pain. It doesn't do you any good to be pissed off at your knee for hurting. It's so much more beneficial to go, okay, me, what's happening there? Okay. Let's, I'm coming to the rescue. Let me search out some solution. The same way we could look at emotional pain of grief or shame or sadness or overwhelm and go, okay, this is messaging here. It's cluing me in, but we don't often do that, right? We oftentimes go, why do I feel this way? And I know you talk a lot about how, how fruitless it is to stay in that. Why, why are you this way? So talk to me a little bit about how that relates to anxiety in particular as a symptom and as a messenger versus something that we need to fix. And that's attacking us.
1: Yeah. And I love what you were saying about, we don't get mad at our (laughs) knee and like, I tell people think about like a mother with a little child who skinned their knee. The mom's not like your fucking knee sucks. Look at the scrape. It's like you kiss the boo-boo. That's like what parents and children in an ideal world, not my world, but in an (laughs) ideal world, that's what was supposed to happen. But like, somewhere along the line, we forget that we need to tend to our own wounds with the same care and compassion that an ideal parent would have. So like, if you bust your knee, it's oh my God, my knee, it hurts. How can I help it? But with our emotions, we are so, and my, again, I include myself, untrained and unequipped to deal with discomfort. Like we live in this, how can I make everything as comfort as possible and as squishy and warm and you know convenient as possible? That anytime we feel something unpleasant or uncomfortable, we're going to label it as bad. Which again is bananas to me because first of all, that's incredibly reductive. Like good, bad is very infrequently the case. Things are way too complex and nuanced to be reduced to this is good. This is bad. But I agree with you all feelings are messengers. And there are no negative feelings. There are no positive feelings either. They're just feelings. And some of them are comfortable and happy and feel good. And some of them are uncomfortable and distressing and awful, but I don't like positive or negative. It's just like, what's true. What's true is you're sad. Sad is a very uncomfortable way to feel. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's just uncomfortable. Oh, you're feeling excited. Cool. Excited is not a positive feeling. It's just a feel good feeling. So there's like, what's true. There's feel good truths and not feel good truths, but anxiety is a signal. It's like a smoke detector. If your smoke alarm goes off in your house, you're not going to sit there and be like, Oh my God, I have such a smoke alarm problem. Like my freaking smoke <laughs> alarm disease. It's like, What? It's like, no bitch. There's a fire. Like go check out the fire. So all of our quote, unpleasant or quote, negative emotions are smoke detectors that are telling us, Hey, there is a problem somewhere. I hate the term panic attack or anxiety attack. Your brain is not attacking you. Like my, I will rant about this on any, (laughs) wherever I can, like your brain is on your side. Even when you feel like shit, even when you're in, and I've had clinical depression. I take antidepressants. I've been addicted to like all kinds of drugs and sex and relationships. I understand that like the human experience is very, very difficult. Nevertheless. Your brain is on your side, no matter what's happening.
0: I, yes, absolutely. And so I find this really helpful in situations where, so I used to do community theater quite a bit and I would have all of the fear responses, like I'm about to be attacked by a mountain lion. So I've got you know, the sweaty palms, the racing heartbeat, you know, feeling almost like weak in my stomach. And Uh and so in those moments, instead of feeding that fear, because my body, it's just like, are you sure there's not danger? We're scanning for threat. We're scanning for threat. Is that director going to eat you alive? And so I would actually talk to my fear response and say, Oh, sweetie, Thank you so much for being prepared. Thank you for being ready to fight. Thank you for being ready to take care of me. We are actually not in imminent danger, physical threat. We just are worried about being accepted and, you know, and that's okay. And I appreciate you coming to my rescue. And then in that moment, what's happening is you're distracting the mind and also acknowledging what's happening for you on a nervous system level.
1: Oh, I love that so much. Well, you're also observing your experience while you're having it. And it's really hard to be flooded and overwhelmed and knocked on your ass by an experience if you can be conscious and observe it. So I do circus stuff just for fun because reasons. (laughs) And before, same thing, before I do an aerial show, I feel like I'm about to die. Like physiologically, it feels like I am about to actually die. But if I can observe, hey, look, my brain feels like it's about to die, then I can intervene. And that beautiful talking to the fear response that you just described is so useful because the act of observing our symptoms reduces them. So that's an incredibly useful thing. One of my circus directors once told me when I was ready to puke, she's like, isn't it great? And I forgot all of this, even though I'm a therapist, (laughs) because when you're scared, you you forget everything, you know, and she's like, isn't it great that what you're naming as panic is actually just excitement because those are the same body cues. I'm like, oh yeah, I know that, but I forget (laughs) that. Like, racing heart and sweaty palms could mean you're about to have an orgasm or it could mean you're about to get eaten by a lion. So it's helpful to remember that the physiology doesn't always tell the accurate story. Right. Right. Okay.
0: So so here I too have been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, depression, um all all of the things and have been on a medication and have been very open about that for gosh almost 20 years. And I know you talk about that sort of in the very beginning of your book around anxiety, sort of the, the hyper medication, hyper diagnostic way that we just flood everybody with medication. I don't think it's the answer for everybody, but one of the things that you said was so crucial and key to me. And you said, if you take medication and you feel more like yourself, then you might be on to something. And that is always how I felt. Cause then immediately I thought, Oh shit, now I'm going to have to get off medication and like, reckon with my anxiety. And it was so unbelievably debilitating. The way I would describe it is the situation that that you and I both recanted, going on stage, um, about to perform, about to give a speech, I felt that way all the time. And mm-hmm. it in I felt like I was frying my nervous system constantly. So in I'm just curious for people who are listening, because I do tend to attract a lot of people who struggle with anxiety. What is that line? And I know it's going to be different for everybody, but how do you know, like, okay, I can't survive because of my anxiety versus I need to really listen to it and I can work with it. Like that feels so sticky for me as like, where? Mm -hmm. how do I figure out, what the right coping mechanism is for me.
1: It's so tricky and really the environment and the context matter. You know, if you're a single mother with three kids working two jobs, you don't have the luxury of sitting down and doing the self-inquiry necessary to listen to the messages of anxiety. It's like you have kids to take care of and you've got rent to pay and you've got little mouths to feed like fine. Like, I get that, you know, you're going to probably do really well having something to make your symptoms manageable so you can continue to function, but it requires a very, and I I wish there was like a do this or do that. This is how, you know, but it's about getting really honest and looking at your environment. I was talking to someone this week and they were like, I just don't have any time and I don't have the resources to do what I need to do to listen to my anxiety. And I'm like, how true is that? And in some cases it is true that legit, you have no options other than to medicate suppress the symptom. Fine. I would much rather someone be a zombie going through life alive, keeping the children safe than feeling out of control and dangerous. And I would, I said to this person, okay, how true is it that you have no time and no resources? You're going to have to give up some stuff. You may need to sell some stuff, but like, What is actually true about your choice ability? Do you have the choice to do this work? And if the answer is no, it's no. But if the answer is yes, then I would say, be careful that you don't suppress everything because- if you have the resources and the time to deal with this, you're going to have to deal with it eventually. It's either going to show up in the form of an addiction, or it's going to show up in the form of a medical issue or whatever. But it's it's almost always easier to face it than to avoid it. When we avoid the thing, we generally create more problems. But like, if you're in crisis mode, crisis mode is not the time to do self-inquiry. Crisis mode is survival mode. If you're going through a horrible divorce from a sociopathic abusive narcissist, you're not going to be able to di- like dive into the messages of your depression and your anxiety. It's like, get the fuck out, survive, use your resources. And once we get you to safety, then we can figure out what's going on. But really ask yourself, am I about to head into the war? Am I in the war or am I home from Mm -hmm. war? And if you're home from war, we can do this kind of work. If you're going in or you're still in it, we need other more crisis-based tools. (laughs) I oftentimes will
0: say like, if your arm just got cut off, it's not the time for acupuncture. Yes, I love that so much. Like yes, exactly. that's the time when yes. we need acute
1: management, right? Medical. Yes. <laughs> acute. yes, Western medicine is great if your arm is off, is falling off of you know your shoulder. Yes, oh, I love it. I'm feeling that. That's really
0: good. <laughs> there's there's another thing that we're kind of dancing around here, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. I oftentimes see people who want to rectify emotional pain through something physical, so even the way that we see emotional pain manifest physically, you know, like you could have addiction or you could have all these various types of issues or even uh, disease or ailments. I also see how we want to quell emotional pain through physical feeling. So if it emotionally hurts that the emotional feeling we don't want to be with. We want to feel something physically. So let me fuck it away. Mm -hmm. Let me drink it away. Let me smoke it away. Even let me work out it away. I was just going to
1: say, or CrossFit it away or, you know, whatever it away, you know, when I do circus stuff, it is very much like, so I was in a lot of very, very unhealthy, like abusive type relationships. Like, physically abusive kinds. And so for me, part of the circus is I get bruised and beat up and banged up. And it's like, I'm experiencing the same thing, but it's all physiological. There's nobody doing it to Mm -hmm. me, but you know, I used to use that as an escape. It's like, I'm going to go and be so beat up by this workout Mm -hmm. that I'm going to forget that this is my trauma. I've since figured out Doing the circus workout and getting banged up and bloodied and whatnot is still really useful for me, but that has to come along with yes. doing the trauma healing. Yes. It can't be otherwise, you're just substituting it's that then it becomes an addiction. Any coping mechanism that you use to suppress your truth instead of use to cope with your truth, that turns into an addiction.
0: I like to call those noble numbing because it's yes. it's like uh oh, I'm gonna throw myself into parenting and I'm gonna be on yeah. the, you know. I don't know what it's called cause I don't have kids, but like PTO or whatever, like the parent organization. <laughs> let me, let me distract <laughs> myself. Let me throw myself into my work. How noble, uh-huh. let me throw myself into people pleasing and caretaking for everybody else or working out like crazy. And it's another uh-huh. opportunity to shut yourself off of, uh, of the emotional healing that needs to happen.
1: Yes. And it's like, is the thing you're doing? None of those things are inherently bad. It's like, don't stop working out. Don't stop parenting. I don't have kids either. Don't stop doing whatever parents do. But like, are you doing that to feel more like yourself or are you doing that to escape yourself? Anything that takes us further away from ourselves is going to end up being Not awesome. And we're going to feel crappy. And then we're going to blame ourselves. And then you're going to be sitting on that couch behind me going, what's wrong with me? It's like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're in pain. You're sad. There's grief. There's trauma. That's not something wrong with you. That's like legitimate pain points. That's like, if I broke my arm, it's like, what's wrong with me? Why do I suck? It's like, you don't suck. Your arm's broken. That's why it hurts. Because But you as a person, our bones can break, but you can't be broke. Your personality is not breakable. You cannot be broken as a person. Right. Right. I oftentimes will
0: say people have that belief of like, I'm uniquely broken. Like you haven't, you haven't seen anyone like me, Britt.
1: You haven't (laughs) I call that the best worst. I am the most worst. I am the (laughs) best of the worst. Yes.
0: Yeah. I, I am the best at being the most broken. You're you've never heard anything like this before. (laughs) And it's like, uh, guess what? Welcome to my own brain. Before we continue, I wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And you know I'm a huge fan of therapy. I like to say, if you don't think that you need therapy, then you probably need therapy. Because listen, without a healthy mind, being really, truly happy and at peace can really be a challenge. But the good news is that therapy really does work. So whatever you need help with, it is time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better. Okay, because you deserve to be happy. Here's the deal. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't even have to be on camera if you don't want to. Hello, introverts. I see you out there. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. They have over 20,000 therapists in their network, which gives you way, way more options than your immediate geographical area. And it's also available for clients worldwide. Much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in less than 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. In fact, a member of my family just started and totally loves it. It is always a good time to invest in yourself because you. Deserve it. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the bold Face truth podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com/slash bold truth. That's Better e l p dot com slash bold truth. Or enter the code BOLDTRUTH at checkout again to save 10% off your very first month. All right, let's get back to the show. One of the things that was really fascinating for me, because I kind of nerd out on semantics. Can you break down for us the difference between anxiety, fear, and worry?
1: Thank you. And the semantics, like I'm a word nerd too, but it's not just because we like to be weird about words. It's the words that we use to describe our lives, make a very big difference in whether or not we're going to be able to make changes. Anxiety is not the same as fear is not the same as worry. And the word anxiety, I really just don't like because we almost always use it improperly. Anxiety is physiology. It is just a neutral state. If it's your nervous system is stuck in a sympathetic activation, meaning the gas pedal is glued to the floor your nervous system is stuck on up and that will look like racing heart, sweaty palms, dry mouth, clenching stomach. And at a very, very high level of that, we call that panic. And so anxiety is the physiological body sensations that we just described. Anxiety is a sympathetic state of your nervous Mm -hmm. system. And there's a threat Of unknown origin attached to it. So if it's like my palms are sweaty, but there's no fear attached to like there's not like an imminent threat. You know, people are anxious, they have this sense, they don't know what it is, but this looming sense of impending doom, like something is going to go wrong. Fear is when we have the physiology and there's a a clear and present identifiable threat. Like I am afraid that my loved one will get COVID. That's not anxiety. You don't have anxiety about it, you fear about it, right? Because you have the physiology and you have the source of the threat. then worry is like diet fear or fear light. Worry is you have the physiology and there's a clearly identifiable threat, but It's not life and death. And ultimately what we want to do is turn your anxiety, which is this free floating sense of dread with uncomfortable physiology. We want to nail that down into a fear. And then we want to shrink the fear into a worry because worry we can manage. Anxiety, which is what the hell? I don't know where it's going to come from. We can't do anything about. So anxiety is physiological. Fear is physiological feelings with a story or a threat. Worry is that threat story, but like dialed down to a two from a 10.
0: So do you categorize at all worry and fear as emotions as well?
1: Mm, it's such an interesting question, right? Like the semantics of what's an emotion versus. And a I mean, it ultimately doesn't matter. It's just how are we engaging with oh, these experiences? I absolutely do. To me, emotions are those feeling states. Emotions are body states that have a story. And it's not like we always make up the story. If I'm about to be eaten by a lion, that is an accurate story. If I'm feeling the physiology and there's no actual lion and I'm making that up in my head, inaccurate story. So all emotions are physiological states, feeling states, with a narrative attached to them. So,
0: okay, so when I, when I was going through hypnotherapy school, we talked about the difference between fears and phobias. And one of the delineations was, or the main delineation was fear is something with logic, like, right, you can actually see that that is an imminent threat to my physical safety versus phobias being not, not able to locate the origin of the threat that it doesn't make Mm, rational sense. Is that true?
1: Yeah. I like that a lot. And I've had phobic reactions to things. So I agree with you a thousand percent. I would also say that a fear, again, whether it's a logical fear or an illogical fear, it makes sort of sense because it's about the thing that it's about. I'm afraid of COVID. I'm actually afraid of this thing. Phobias are almost always placeholders for the original injury. So like if you have a, and this isn't always true for every person in every situation, but if you have a fear of heights, like, Okay. So biologically, that's probably what it is. That makes sense. But if you have like an unrealistic fear of snakes and you live in a city and there's no, you've never seen a snake. You've never been bitten by a snake. The likelihood that that phobia is a placeholder for a trauma that your brain has just equated with snakes is probably likely. So whenever there's a phobia, the first question is, is there like an evolutionary reason that this might be a thing? And is it possible that there's a trauma story that has use this phobia as a placeholder.
0: So it really almost kind of comes full circle to the, the notion that a lot of our discomfort, whether it be an addiction or a phobia or a physical ailment is really just a proxy for unresolved trauma.
1: Yes. And I'll use myself as an example, like sharing vulnerably. I don't like doing it, but I'll do it in service of the work. I grew up with a huge phobia of sponges. Like this sounds really weird, but squeezing sponges just flipped my shit out. I would have meltdowns. I would freak out. I would panic. I would rage like well into my twenties squeezing or seeing sponges in a sink or like having to wring out a sponge just like made me lose my fucking mind. And eventually I tracked that back to that came that tied back to sexual trauma. And if you think of squeezing a sponge and what, like it's, it's not that much of a jump to realize that squeezing a sponge, my brain somehow took the sexual trauma and like turned it into sponge equals that. And so that was not about sponges. That was not about water. That phobia was about a sexual trauma that my brain decided to make sense of by making me afraid of sponges. Bizarro. And I used to be like, what's wrong with me? Why am I crazy? Why am I afraid of sponges? And it's like, well, our brains are very smart and very stupid. Our brains will simplify things for us. And so my brain was like, I can't process the sexual trauma stuff, but we'll make you afraid of sponges because it's close enough in the somatic experience of squeezing a sponge to squeezing body parts that that's a safer place to put it
0: this is so fascinating. I could I, I could do this all damn day because I, I just, I absolutely love how the brain works. And it really comes back to that concept of it's always trying to take care of us, right? It yes. doesn't want yes. you to be decimated by this sexual trauma. So it's like, let's send in this irrational phobia And then we start spinning out into this place of there's something wrong with me. So can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about whatever the symptom is that is coming up for you, whether it's anxiety, whether it's procrastination, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, in my work, we talk a lot about people pleasing and perfectionism. All of Mm -hmm. those things are just defense mechanisms, typically because there's some sort of fear or something that's arresting you. So yes, your thoughts.
1: (laughs) all the things, all the things. Okay. So I spent years with the, why am I afraid of sponges? What's wrong with me? And that's not a helpful question. When you walk up to a burning building, you don't ask, why is it on fire? And I wonder how the fire started. It's like, get the people out of the damn building. We'll figure out the why later. So if you are having a response, whether it's a fear response or a shutdown response or a stuck watching hour 12 of a -a binge-a-thon whatever it is, don't ask why you feel the way you feel ask what people, places, and things are available to me right now that would help my brain feel safe. But I don't think my brain should feel unsafe. That is irrelevant to this conversation. Step one, validate that even if you don't know why, your brain, for whatever reason, is not feeling safe. Cool. Step two, pick five choices, people, places, or things that your brain would feel a little less shitty being exposed to step three of those five, pick one and do it. And then eventually, once we get you settled, then we can start playing around with the how and the why and the who, and all of that fun analytical stuff. But analysis is not a good intervention as a, like a first line. Thing like don't ask why. Turn all of your whys into what do I need, what's available to me, and what am I going to choose, and then you can get to the why later. I've always thought that when
0: we actually learned that in in coaching school too, how a fruitless asking why is because it oftentimes will also spur from somebody else a sense of defensiveness. You know, like why did you do this? Well, because you know, and it's not, it's not helpful in really thoughtful communication, right?
1: love that so much. so like sidebar with the why, like my husband, like bless his heart <laughs> is very logical and analytical and he'll say things like, you know, why is this door open or whatever And I said to him, Asking someone else a why question is inherently shamey because it immediately puts you up here and the person down there. And my poor husband is like, what the hell? He's very open to it. He knows now. I'm like, don't ask why. Ask a child. Why'd you do that? I don't know. Why is not a good Mm -hmm. question. A better question is, hey, I noticed the door is open. What's up? Or what's going Mm -hmm. on with that? Or is, do you need something? Or say, hey, I noticed the door is open and that frustrates me. That is a lot easier than... Why is the door open? Which is sort of a gotcha question. So don't do that to yourself, just like you wouldn't want your partner to do it to you, just like your child doesn't want to be, no one wants to be asked a why question. So let's take it out of our self talk as well.
0: Completely agree. So I want to talk about another way in which we get really stuck. And this is something that's been coming up a lot with my partner. And I know you've in, in the book, you really target all of these different ways that stuckness shows up for us, sort of like what the symptoms look like essentially. So we can dig behind them. Talk to me about procrastination. I've, I've all, oftentimes associated this with the freeze response, you know, that yes. we have these primitive fear responses and then sort of like the modern iterations of them. So You know, it's not like we're looking at our computer and we're like stoic and not moving. It's that we're just not taking action. So it's not as intense of a threat, but I've often felt like the reason why we procrastinate is, is quite vast. And there's a lot of reasons. What is your take on that?
1: I hate the word procrastination. Like I hate that. And again, people get so pissy. They're like, Are you excusing the binge? I'm like, I'm not excusing the behavior. Obviously, the behavior is a problem. Like, if you're not doing the thing you want to be doing and you're feeling like shit because of it, that's a problem. But procrastination is, a, is not a good word for us to continue to use. It's like procrastination, you're not doing the thing that you, you should be doing. Shame on you. Like, it's not a good word. Procrastination means you are not doing the thing and there's a reason you're not doing the thing. And the likelihood that you're having a fear response is pretty high. It's like, No, I'm just lazy. If only that were true, if it was that you were just lazy, then fine. Then it's just a personality problem, but no, you're not lazy. Why am I laying on the couch? Cause you're burnt out and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're sad and you're grieved and you're traumatized. It's like, well, that's not an excuse. I know it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. Mm-hmm. If I say to you, you're laying on the couch watching hour 12 of Bridgerton. Well, okay. What's going on in your life? You're not lazy. You're sad. So let's figure out how to help you be sad more skillfully. Okay. You're afraid. Cool. Let's help you be afraid more skillfully. But if you're just saying I'm lazy, I'm a procrastinator that gives us no information to like intervene upon. Like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm a procrastinator. Cool. We need to know, are you sad? Are you scared? Let's just break it down to the basics. Are you scared? Are you angry? Are you afraid? It's probably one of those three. And of those three are the combination Again, step two, what are your people, places, and things that are available? And step three, pick one. And I think a lot of times we procrastinate
0: because whatever it is that we're involved in takes either emotional or physical effort. So, if you've been running yourself ragged, taking care of the kids, working all week long, and then you're berating yourself of why you don't want to clean out the garage on the weekend, it's like, well, you don't have the reserves. You don't have the physical energy reserves to put it towards that project. And I see that, and I'm sure you do in your work too, when you give assignments to folks and they have, you know, they're on the precipice of burnout for them to choose the emotional labor of working on their own shit versus binging out mad men or whatever, like that's always going to be more attractive if it, if it's not going to take as much energy, physical or emotional energy.
1: It's so true. It's so true with COVID too. It's like, why am I not learning how to bake banana bread and start a new language? It's like, you have no bandwidth for that reasonably. So what are you going to do about that? But you're so right. Just going, I'm lazy. I suck. And then doing the behavior feels a lot easier. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to not do what you want to be doing, but the myth is, is that it's just easier to not go to the gym. It's like, really? How true is that? Cause how good are you going to feel? And how much energy are you going to waste beating yourself up? And then blah, 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 blah. It's actually easier to do the thing than to not do the thing if we're going to get honest.
0: Yeah, I remember hearing you talk about the difference between uh I forget how you articulated it, empty space versus white space or um free, free time. time. That's free what Free time was. versus
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free time assumes that you have choices the pandemic created a lot of empty time, but that was not free. It's not like, well, we have now hours and hours to go wherever and do whatever with whomever. It's like, no, it was empty time because we couldn't do anything. But free time is great because we get choice. Empty time is traumatic because it locks us down and restricts our choices.
0: Big difference. Not to mention that we were also in the middle of a collective trauma trying to be hyper-productive. <laughs> so it's like, right. uh, and that, that new trauma is kicking up old trauma from for all sorts of folks in every single area of their life. And we're going, why can't I be, why can't I produce? I need to do more and be more. And so something that I've heard you talk about that I really want to discuss uh, before our time is out here and before you've got another uh, poop to drop off. (laughs) Oh yeah, nothing like a good poop. Another kid to drop off at the pool. Um, Emotional regression. Can you talk about emotional regression and how that shows up for us in different areas of our life, whether it be with a boss or with a family member or friendship um, and how that kind of thwarts how we view ourselves?
1: So emotional regression, I think is one of the like least talked about yet most prevalent things that we struggle with like when I learned about this, I was like mind blown. Emotional regression is when you feel smaller or younger than your chronological self. So logically, I know I am forty two, and I own my own business, and I am a psychotherapist, and yay, adulting! I have a big girl, John. Yeah. I am a big girl now, yeah. And then there are times with people where I feel 16 and I feel like a bitchy bratty princessy teenager. And I'm like, I don't wanna, you should take care of me. And there are times where I feel like a terrified toddler where it's like, somebody hug me, please. Somebody hug me. And we shift, we shape shifts, you know, the big task of mental health and wellness is, can you be at your right size in the right amount at the right time? But we are often with bosses, we shrink down with the prospect of a big challenge. We shrink down in the face of any type of conflict. We shrink down and knowing that emotional regression is a thing. A good question to ask yourself before you go into the, what's wrong with me is how old do you feel right now? because you can feel like a badass ninja boss queen. And then within two hours, you feel like an infant screaming for its mother, mother. And that's a really important thing to know. Cause when we talk about self-care, it's really hard to do self-care. If you don't know how old the part of you that's flipping out is feeling. So if I'm being a super bitchy teenager, like fuck off if you're going to make me work out. Like as a teenager, I don't want to work out. I want to eat junk food and watch movies and listen to music and be with my friends. So an intervention, a self-care, if I'm feeling teenage age might be, I watch a show or I go do something with a friend An intervention. If I'm feeling like a terrified toddler, it's also not going to be a kale smoothie, like a toddler I'll throw that across the room. That might be, I need physical touch or I need my weight blanket or I need smelly things or squishy things. So before we talk about what's my self-care it's, well, how old are you? And what's self-care for that age part? Because self-care looks different to different ages and it looks different to parts of us on different days. It's a really useful little hack. I don't like the word, but fine. It's a really useful hack. How old am I? What would someone this age need for care? And then do that.
0: I totally agree with you that this is something that we miss and everyone listening can relate to this. I would be willing to guess that it's largely around our families of origin, our parents, or people who are in authority who remind us of our parents. Right. And I can, I'm thinking about this now, as I engage with, with my mom in particular, how, how I do that and how I need to start thinking about what, what age is that and what version of Amy, uh, what would she need at that age that, that really I think could be such such a game changer. My question to you is, can you have age progression? Because sometimes I feel old as fuck.
1: <laughs> sometimes I feel like I'm 65 instead of 43. <laughs> I've never heard it labeled as age progression, but yeah, we'll talk about if we're sliding around on the chronological scale. If you're 43, 43 is here. Anywhere you feel younger or smaller, you're down there. And anywhere you feel older, you're up there. But anyone. Anywhere- we're not where we are and when we are is going to be either a regression or a progression. I love that. Like, you should coin that, hashtag that, <laughs> write it up, do the thing. Cause I feel like that too. And regression is most prevalent around the holidays. Like, I'm sure you know this, too, in your work. Holiday season for wellness people is like tax season for accountants. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> is losing their goddamn mind. And the reason is because of regression. We all want the picture perfect childhood that if we had, we want to recreate. And if we didn't have, we want to try to get. The fact is, is once childhood's over is over, we have an inner child that's always with us, but you don't get to actually be six again, opening up beautiful presents on Christmas morning or whatever your holiday is. And we need to grieve that, that the the developmental stage of childhood is done. You got what you got. And if we don't grieve that, then we're going to end up repeating it and feeling crappy and being regressed. Mother's day and father's day are big ones for regression too. If you identify as an empath, just kind of feel out what the vibe is around Mother's Day, specifically more so Mother's Day than Father's Day. But you can feel the angsty, tense, sort of, I used to wait tables. Mother's Day is the most reviled day of the calendar for restaurants because it's like you can, people are just on edge. They are wound up really tight and servers tend to get the brunt of the punishment for that, but it's because everyone's in the middle of a regression, including the moms. Everyone wants their mom on mother's day, including moms. And it's like, there's no great mother available, at least not in the natural human state to come and get us. So we have to become our own parents. We have to become our own mothers and our own fathers. Doesn't mean we don't need other people. It does mean that no one's coming to save you from yourself again in the physical realm. So we need
0: to do it. And it also means that you have to contend with the, gr- the, the grief around yes. the anger and the sadness of being robbed of what you should have gotten from your primary caregivers too. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. something that you're talking about here with an inner child and sort of an inner teenager. I want you to talk a little bit about internal family systems. Is this the same thing as parts work? We learned a lot of that in hypnotherapy school, but I'm really curious what, what the specific modality of internal family systems is as it relates to sort of these various elements of our personality.
1: Uh, so I love internal family systems. It's Dr. Richard Schwartz's model. It's my fa- Of all the things I've ever learned, if I could pick one, that would be the one, even though I like picking from everything. So parts work is just the general idea that our personality is made up of lots of different parts, little parts, big parts, bitchy parts, nice parts, mean parts, whatever. And there are a lot of ways to do parts work. IFS, Internal Family Systems, is a very specific therapeutic model that has a protocol for how to do parts work. So it's not Got the it. only way to do... Not all parts work is IFS, but IFS is a way of doing parts work.
0: Got it. Got it. And so it's it's the... Uh, a specific protocol so a practitioner who is trained in that modality such as yourself would help you analyze these various versions of ourselves that we tap into given a certain circumstance and then work through them
1: sort of it's it's i wish it was the analysis thing because analysis is so much more present <laughs> it's and and i a true ifs practitioner session will be the the therapist is there to facilitate a part to self relationship. Uh-huh. So it's sort of like you're doing family therapy with all your parts and yourself. I try to analyze and my therapist, cause I have an IFS therapist. He's like, yeah, we're not analyzing right now. We're, we're engaging, we're integrating, we're communicating. I'm like, I don't want to, I just want to think about my parts. I don't want to talk to them. Cause that's where all the feelings are, but an IFS session will help you connect with all of those parts and help you get to know them and help you realize they're all valuable. Even the ones you think you don't like are there to help you, and they have—they all have gifts to give you if you learn how to work with them.
0: Hundred percent. I've done that quite a bit. Obviously, not the same uh, formula in in hypnosis, which can be so incredibly powerful, where you actually meet this version of yourself and. Ask them questions and learn what they have to share with you, and and then impart what you need to say to them to caretake for them. And um, but it it always involves sort of that in engaging with that element of yourself versus standing back and being like, oh, number four over there looks like this, and number two over here looks like that. And you know the analysis that we would rather do, like size up the characters rather than en- yes, engaging yes, yes. with them. Um, it's yeah. like being in The movie versus just watching the movie, I think.
1: I love that. I love that so much. And sometimes the analysis, you know, like for people and myself who are terrified of their feelings, if you need to make a cast list before you start engaging, like maybe you need to work your way in. So first we make the cast list and then it is look at number four and look at number two. And sometimes that's part of it. But the ideal process is connecting with these parts of yourself, which is great because it takes the therapist out of the guru. It's not like the therapist has your answers. It's like, no, you have your answers. The therapist is there to guide you to your truth, not to sell you on theirs. Like I'm a big advocate of that.
0: Absolutely. I oftentimes will tell people if you're dependent on me, then I haven't done my job. (laughs) then that's not coaching. That's not what this is. You need to be like, okay, that's Amy's thoughts. And this is something that I talk about all the time is, okay, that's Amy's truth or that's her perspective. Is that true for me? And trying it on the same way you would try on a dress or a jacket or something and go, okay, does that fit? Is it resonant or is it dissonant? Okay, cool. No, I think it's this with a little tweak of that because I think, that gets really dangerous and gets cult-like and religious. And I know you've got cult experience. I ha- I would, <laughs> I would also argue that I do too, growing up in fundamentalism, evangelical Christian family. Uh, but yeah, then we start getting into these things outside of myself now can dictate my truth, which I think is a dangerous place.
1: Very much so. And yes, that upbringing is very cult-like. It can be, you know, especially because it's, the truth exists in a finite state. The truth is out there and you need to do this, say this, believe this, you're going to hell. Like, yeah, that's, that's not a great way to develop a little tiny developing person's brain. And it's dangerous, but as adults, I get it. It's like, someone tell me who I am, what to believe, what to think and what to do that is a very tempting prospect. So I get that. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's, you need to know yourself, not try to be what someone else has created. I agree with you. Not
0: to mention that the entire foundation is that you are broken, <laughs> that you need saving, <sighs> that you are not enough. And so to me, there's nothing more damaging than, and it gives you the ability to control people to say you are less than, I mean, we see that in systems of oppression is if we can tell the queer community that they're less than straight or fat is less than thin, or, you know, persons of color are less than, you know, it, then we can keep systems of oppression functioning. So I often think God, just believing in your own enoughness and that you are worthy and valuable is such a huge fuck you and such a
1: huge piece of the resistance. Right. And not bypassing the pain. I have this quote from the princess bride in my book, you know, life is pain highness. Anyone who sell- says differently is selling something. And it's like, yeah, anywhere that we are offered a chance to like skip out on pain and grief and shame and anger and sadness, there's likely someone profiting off of that and making a fortune off of that, off of the, you know, you don't have to be in pain. You can do this in two days. It's like, no, that's actual bullshit. Like who's making the money off of this belief is a great question to ask yourself before you engage in a wellness practice.
0: So great. And, and a beauty practice, I would say too, like who benefits off of me not liking what I look like physically. So many good things here, Britt. I feel like we could just keep going and going and going. But I know that there is this really cool, tangible action step that you include in every single chapter of the book. And my very formulaic linear mind loves this, having five-minute challenges at the end of each chapter. Can you give us, based off of some of the stuff that we've talked about today, what is one five-minute challenge that somebody could go take off with right after they listen to this episode?
1: And I'm really big on five minute challenges. Cause most of us don't have time or focus to do more than that. It's like, okay, pick five things, two people, two places, and three things that help you feel less shitty. When you feel shitty, write them down, keep them in your pocket, put them on your phone. That's your inventory. That's your menu when you feel shitty next time. And so you only have to do that once two people, two places, three things that help you feel less bad. When you feel bad, that doesn't take very
0: long. Thought I had heard you say two P's, two T's like People, places,
1: was it things and thoughts? People, places, things and thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot. About that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
0: you. It's your awesome That's acronym. Funny. Um, yeah, two P's, two T's. People, places, things, and thoughts. So, come up with this ahead of, like, when you're in kind of a tranquil, calm place. Come up with yes. these go tos. Right. Got it.
1: Like if you're listening to the podcast, likely whenever I listen to things, I get all amped up and within 20 minutes, I'm back to like the grind of life. So like grab your phone and write down two people, two places, two things, or pe- what's my acronym? People, places, thoughts, and things. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> and that's your menu of options.
0: So great. I I love a good acronym. Love a good acronym. So this has been so fantastic. I'm, I'm so glad that you picked up the phone. Can you tell everybody, I'm going to hold this up in case I actually use this video, the science of stuck, where can they get it? Where can they find out more about you? How can they stalk you? All hey,
1: I love being stalked. I'm on Instagram with terrible Instagram boundaries. I'm always there at Brit Frank. Britt has two Ts. Uh, the book you can buy wherever. And my website is scienceofstuck.com. Come say hi.
0: Perfect. And y'all, I have jumped into this book and I am obsessed when I'm not throwing it across the room because I'm mad at western medicine but <laughs> I I cannot thank you enough for talking about this through this lens I think it is mandatory and important for absolutely everyone out there. And thanks for letting me just rant and rave with you a little bit today. It's been such a pleasure.
1: Oh my God. You are so fun. I wish we had another hour cause I could keep going. We'll easily. do it
0: again for sure. We'll do it again for sure. So I will let you go and I will say, talk to you later, my friend. See you soon. Bye. Who, man, she is so brilliant. I'm hoping that there were a bunch of great nuggets that you were able to take away. I tend to hang out the most on Instagram, so if you find me over there under the handle Hey Amy Green Smith, I would love to hear what your biggest takeaway was from today and share what is maybe one action step that you're going to take to start shifting your kind of stuck energy that you've been having lately. Also, next week we're going to be digging into perfectionism and procrastination and how those two things are directly related to one another as we talk about this whole concept of being stuck. Don't miss that. Also, be sure to get your name on the VIP list. Just go to amygreensmith.com slash worthy. Uh, that link will also be in the show notes for you. And I will see you around these parts next week. And please remember, you are enough. Your voice matters. So go out there and speak the bold faced truth.